Good evening to you all and welcome to um, this talk. Before I start the talk, I, I thought it would be appropriate, and I did clear it with Kay, as this is the last one before Christmas, if perhaps we started with a little meditation, a few thoughts, a prayer on the meaning of the coming of Christ at Christmas. May Christmas find each of us engaged in rediscovering the message that comes from the manger in Bethlehem. A little courage is necessary, but it is worthwhile. Because only if we can open out in this way to the coming of Christ, will we be able to experience the peace announced by the angels during that holy night. May Christmas be for you all a meeting with Christ, who became man to give every man the capacity of becoming a son of God. You remember last week that I shared a little bit of our family Irish Catholic heritage with you. I'm not going to go through that again, but just to remind those of you who weren't here last week that Phil comes from an Irish Catholic family and that in her early 20s, she made a decision to become a member of the Baha'i Faith. Um, and the Baha'i Faith has been the focus and drive of Phil's life since. By way of introduction tonight, I just want to share a couple of episodes from perhaps Phil's Baha'i journey. She doesn't know what I'm going to say. We've been sisters for a long time. We may not be by the end uh, of this evening. You'll remember from last week that in her early 20s, she was 23, 24, she went out to Mexico and to Belize doing Baha'i work, what the community now calls pioneering. And when she was in Mexico for 12 months, every three months she had to nip over the border to get her visa um, stamped because Belize was a British territory and then go back to Mexico. So she was well used to crossing the border. And then she made a decision that she was actually going to go to Belize um, and do her pioneering work there. Now, our older sister Colette went across to America to accompany her on this journey. Now, she happened to be in America connected with her job, but I think probably our mother had roped her in and said, go and see what that Philomena is up to. So Colette and Phil arrived at the border between Mexico and Belize. Well, Phil's visa had run out a few days before, um, but everybody said to her, oh, it'll be fine, it'll be fine, there'll be no problem getting into Belize, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they turned up at the border to find that there wasn't a problem. There was a problem, sorry, and they wouldn't let them in. So what do two young women do at this stage who really aren't familiar with all these procedures going between countries that had systems that were very different from what they were used to? So they came back the next day. Now, I've spoken to both of them and neither of them can remember when it, whether money was actually exchanged. Now, you remember there was a story with Martha Ruth where somebody helped her to get through from one country to another when she was struggling. So I do have a feeling that money was exchanged to get Phil 
into Belize to do her pioneering work. I must say it won't have been Phil's money because Phil's never had any money. It will have been Colette's money, our older sister, who we've often had money off. And that's that's the way with families, isn't it? So Phil did get into Belize. And when she was in Belize, obviously, she needed a job to support herself. So she got a job with Air Florida. Now, you're all thinking it was probably some high tech job, air traffic control, running the airport, whatever it happened to be. No, no. Phil used to stand on the runway. This is the absolute truth with two tennis rackets and bring the planes in. Now, if you knew anything about Phil, and I'm trying to give you a picture of the person she is, you wouldn't trust Phil to put you across the road, never mind to um, bringing the planes, but she brought them in. And she loved her time in Belize because this was a time of formation for her in the Baha'i faith. And I was convinced last week in, in listening to her talking about Martha, Martha Ruth, the reason she's come to love Martha's story is that it does in some ways reflect her Baha'i journey because she's done a lot of travelling uh, with her Baha'i faith. She's been to Senegal. She's been to Gambia doing Baha'i work. And then she found Cornwall. And Cornwall, where she now lives, um, has become her spiritual home. And it's from there that she's going to continue Martha's journey for us. So if I could ask you to sit back and enjoy Martha's journey as she travelled around different parts of the world, bringing people to God. Over to you, Phil. Thank you, Bernie. Great introduction. And um, I can assure you, no money was exchanged. I think that was the problem. At these borders, people do, they hand over $20. And we were, we were far too naive to even think about that. So we had to go back into the town in Merida and spend a very boring three days trying to get the paperwork done to get across, which we did do finally. But thank you for that story. And lovely to have a reflection on Christmas time, especially at this time of year. That was great. Uh, thank you everybody for coming. Some of you will have been here. Most of you will have been here last week, hopefully. A few people won't have been here. So just a very quick potted version. Martha Root was an American journalist at the turn of the, century, the 1900s, worked in Pittsburgh. She became a Baha'i in 1909 and this sort of changed the course of her life. She, um, no, this is a biography. I love biography because I, I just find them so inspiring, any biography really. Martha Roots is particularly inspiring and I've had a little bit of feedback from people this week from people saying Martha Root is their role model in life. Other people have said what she did was amazing. We, could, we just couldn't do it. We can never do it. And I think as we go through the story today, what I'd like you all to think about is that when we look at a biography, it doesn't mean we're going to be the same as that person. That person has particular talents and skills and a, and a particular situation in life. But if you look at Martha's qualities, her qualities of courage, of patience, of determination, all of these are things that we all possess, whatever situation we are in in life. 
And we've certainly seen a lot of that this year during the pandemic from people who work in supermarkets at the front line to the medical staff. And what, whatever situation you're in or whatever difficulties you're in, people have mental health difficulties. People, you know, we learn as much from the successes as well as the failures of a person's life. And last week I got into such a rush. I was trying to tell the whole story, but um, as Shahla pointed out, I'd only done a third of it. And I haven't got a hope in heaven of covering the whole story this week. So I've, I've had to kind of limit it down to, you know, two or three episodes. There's still a lot more to go. But I think these stories are enough to show us Martha's courage, her drive and this beautiful message that she brought to the world. And as we go through the story as well, I'd... I'd like us all to think about what drove Martha Root. And I'll just start off with a picture of Abdul Baha. We, we saw Abdul Baha last week, and Martha Root met him in 1912. He's the son of Baha'u'llah. He brought the Baha'i faith to the West. He was already elderly when he came to the West after having had a life of privation and suffering. And he wanted to travel much more. He traveled through Europe, he traveled through America, but he was unable, at the start of the First World War, he was unable to carry on. So he lamented this fact. And he, this is a well-known quote to Baha'is, look at me, follow me, be as I am. When he said that, he, his name and title, which he actually chose, means servant. He wrote that his name, his qualifications and actions were all service to humanity. And people said that Martha actually took Abdu'l-Baha's Abdul words very literally. She wanted to... Abdu'l-Baha had said he wanted to travel more, so Martha kind of took up the mantle for Abdu'l-Baha, if you like. Now, last week, we mentioned that Martha was desperate on her first travels to go to the Holy Land for pilgrimage. She finally does this in 1925, is her first pilgrimage, up here in the north of the Holy Land in Haifa, which is where the Baha'i World Center was. Sadly, Abdu'l-Baha had passed away in 1921. Also, her father had passed away, Titi Root, in 1922. So although she had made three journeys already, by this time, because her father, she, she felt responsible for looking after her parents, and because they had now both passed away, that was it really. When she left America in 1923, she was just, the world was her country. She did go back, she went back a couple of times, but not really to live. Her life was just one of constant travel from now on. So just to give you a little look of what she saw in the Holy Land, this was the shrine of the Barb on Mount Carmel. That it, actually, this isn't quite accurate, this photograph. I don't think the top had been constructed quite yet in the early 1920s, probably just the bottom. 
at the top of Mount Carmel. This is how it looks today during, um, we had a bicentennial celebration in 2017, and this would be Baha'i pilgrims at that shrine today. She would have met with Shoghi Effendi, who was the grandson of Abdul Baha, who took up, he was, he took over the affairs of the Baha'i faith from the passing of Abdul Baha. He was a very young man. He was only 24 years old. He was actually at Oxford University studying languages when he heard of the passing of his grandfather. And then he, from then on really, until his own passing in the 1950s, he looked after the affairs of the Baha'i faith. And this is who Martha would have liaised with about her journeys. Now she went from the Holy Land down through Europe, through Genoa and into the Balkans. Sadly, I'm not going to be able to talk very much about the Balkans, but that's a huge area of her travel. But what happened when she went down there? She arrived in Romania on a train that was cold and crowded. It was in mid-January 1926 through Hungary into Belgrade, which is now, which is Serbia. It was a brief visit, brief visit there. She then went on to Romania. Now, I think we know by now from our, from the talk last week that Martha had, there was a certain things that she would do when she went into a place. She was a journalist. So she would contact every newspaper. She would find out what the population was. She would deliver articles on the Baha'i faith. She would give talks to anybody, you know, from Boy Scout organizations to universities, to churches, to synagogues, very much in the style of Abdul Baha. We also saw at the, at the end of last week on her trip to Mexico, she arrived there alone, but the first thing that she did was to contact the president of, of Mexico, and she almost got to see him, not quite. She got to his top minister and she did the same in Guatemala. Now, when she got to Romania, she was doing the same thing and she applied to have an interview with Queen Marie of Romania. Now, she was told this is Contrasini Palace, Bucharest, Romania. This would have been the home of King Ferdinand and Queen Marie. Now, Queen Marie was the granddaughter of Queen Victoria of England. And interestingly, we've had um, a talk quite a long time ago now, I think it was Steve actually, who did a talk on Baha'u'llah's letters to the rulers of the time, his letters exhorting them to have to, to peace, to a peaceful way of being, to stop all wars and stuff. And in fact, it was only Queen Victoria who replied to these letters. So it's quite interesting that now Queen Marie, who's Queen Victoria's granddaughter, is the monarch of Romania. Now, Martha, she contacted the American consulate who said it was just simply not possible to see Queen Marie of Romania. This always happened, by the way. Everyone said it was impossible. And that only prompted her to keep trying harder. But 
uh, Martha always, she just did her best. She, want, she wanted to contact the Queen. She said, if I'm not able to, I, if I have an interview with one of the ladies in waiting, if I can convey my message and leave, leave some Baha'i books, that that will be fine. But in fact, the next day, and we're talking now 1926, the 30th of January, a letter arrived from the palace inviting me to visit Queen Marie the next day. Now, this was quite something because the reason why the American consul said it wasn't possible was because the Queen was going through a period of mourning and she wasn't seeing anybody. So in advance, Martha sent her Baha'i books and she got ready for her visit. Now, Martha, from she was about 50, about 53, I think, during this time. And she'd more or less given up her jobs in America with the Pittsburgh newspapers. For those who weren't here last week, she was living in a very exciting time. She was writing during the time of Andrew Carnegie and all those kind of developments in America, the first motor cars. She, in fact, started a column on the automobiles in America when she was back there. But from now on, she was traveling independently. And the way she lived was by sending her articles back to America and hopefully getting some payments for them. But to see Queen Marie, she wanted to take gifts. So she took a small gift of chocolate. She took some perfume and, of course, her Baha'i writings and books. Now, there were more Baha'is around now. When Martha first became a Baha'i, you could count the number of Baha'is in America and Europe on the, you know, on the fingers of one or two hands. But by now, there were more Baha'is. And there happened to be a fairly wealthy one in Romania at the time, who, of course, when she heard about the visit to the Queen, she offered to pay all of Martha's expenses and to buy, you know, an expensive present. Martha would not hear of it. She wanted to take her own simple present, her own perfume, which would have been very simple. I mean, not from Woolworths or Wilco's, but, you know, something like that. And the other thing was, although motor cars were around now in Europe, Romania was a very poor country. It has remained so, as we know, for many years. And it was basically horse and carriage to get to anywhere. And Martha actually only had enough money to get there. She didn't have enough money to come back, but she, you know, she thought she would sort that out when she when she got there. Okay, so she arrived to see Queen Marie. She was actually 53, 53 years old. And after greeting the Queen, Marie's first words were, I believe these teachings are the solution for the world's problems today. She had stayed up until three o'clock in the morning reading Baha'u'llah and the New Era. And later that day, she had sent off her invitation to Martha. So Queen Marie was very impressed by the Baha'i teachings. There was much more literature available now. In fact, Baha'u'llah and the New Era, this is a book very familiar to Baha'is. And it was my first Baha'i book that I read. And I was, you know, equally impressed by it. 
So there was much for them to discuss on world matters, religions and prejudice, Esperanto as an international language and education. It was a totally satisfying meeting and the beginning of a friendship, albeit limited, that would last until the Queen's death in 1938. Now later, Martha said, I loved, loved her and I felt more at home with her than with many other people who are not queens. I learned a great deal from her too. It was such a happy visit. And this was only the first visit of around eight visits that Martha met over time. As I said, I, I just can't go into the Balkans this evening. We'd be here until, until midnight. But Martha made several, several other trips. And it tells you there the book that she brought that impressed Queen Marie. And I like this quote that she said underneath, one may have a religion that satisfies, but the teachings of these gentle, wise and kindly men are compatible with all religion and no religion. Whether you have a religion, whether you're a humanist or an atheist, you would still find something that resonates within the Baha'i teachings. And the interesting thing about Queen Marie was she was a good writer in her, in her own right, <laughs> if you'll excuse the pun. She would spend each morning writing for a couple of hours each day. And she sent her some of her own writings to the newspapers. So this is what happens with Martha. Martha would kind of do her own work. She'd contact newspapers herself. She knew the power of the written word. And then the people she contacted would, would often take up, up the mantle themselves. It was like a snowball that would grow bigger and bigger. And in her own writings, Queen Marie said, the writings are a great cry towards peace reaching beyond all limits of frontiers, above all dissension, above rights and dogmas. It teaches that all hatreds, intrigues, suspicions, evil words, all aggressive patriotism even, are outside the one essential law of God, and that special beliefs are but surface things, whereas the heart that beats with divine love knows no tribe nor race. It is a wondrous message that Baha'u'llah and his son Abdul Baha have given us. They have not set it up aggressively, knowing that the germ of eternal truth, which lies at its core, cannot but take root and spread. I commend to you all, if ever the name of Baha'u'llah or Abdul Baha comes to your attention, do not put their writings from you. Search out their books and let their glorious, peace-bringing, love-creating words and lessons sink into, into your heart as they have into mine. So that was the meeting with Queen Marie of Romania. And then Martha carried on her journey throughout the Balkans. She, wherever she went, she would contact, as I say, she would contact everybody on board ship. She would be giving talks to ship's captains and officers. She would, to the passengers, and she would give talks to the deckhands below. And this was the way she, she would give the talk to anybody. And Mabel, Garris, who has written this biography on Martha, she describes her beautifully. She said that Martha 
was a fragile person, but an aristocrat of the soul. Now, her second, she actually got, went, managed to go to pilgrimage again. This was in November 1929. She got there a second time. She would have met with Shoghi Effendi again. So whereas before she left for Europe and the Balkans, these places, this time she was on a, a different mission with the blessing. Whoops, sorry, just gone. Oh. Uh, with the blessing of Shoghi Effendi. She, was, she wanted to go to a place now that people said, it's impossible, it can't be done, but she did. They said to her, if you go there, you won't come out alive, but she did. They said, if you go there, you won't be able to do your usual tour, you won't be able to meet with the Baha'is and the community, but she did. And this place, whoops, sorry, keep doing that. This place was Iran. Now, Iran is the birthplace of the Baha'i faith, Persia. It's where the birth of the Bab, who was the precursor to Baha'u'llah, um, who, to put it simply, for people who don't know too much about the Baha'i faith, the Bab was, you could say he was a John the Baptist, character, um, except by Baha'is, he is recognized as a divine teacher. He was preparing the way for Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith. So Martha wanted to go into the heart of, of Iran. Now, Iran, from its inception, really, and if I can just go on to the next slide, last week, when we were talking about faiths and all the different faiths that have come over time. We looked at the diagram on progressive revelation, which showed the different faiths, whether it was Buddhism or Judaism or Christianity, Islam. The one thing in common that most of these faiths have is that at their inception, they are persecuted dreadfully, actually. And Lord Curtson, who I've mentioned before, who was traveling, traveled in Persia in the 1890s, one of the first Westerners to travel there. And he wrote this account. He came across the Barbies, as they were called then. And he wrote this account in the Times of London of the persecutions that went on, of the despotism, the shameless debauchery and corruption of the ruling classes, who were persecuting the Baha'is. And he drew a comparison between the massacre of the Barbies and the Jews in Russia. Over 20,000 of the early Barbies were in fact killed, martyred or persecuted. And we've heard about this on different firesides. Not dissimilar from the disciples of Christ, of course. You know, it, we see this in many of the major religions. So she makes her way across to Iraq. She meets, now, um, as Bernie said, we're from the Midlands. Uh, I used to live in New Wolverhampton. And whenever I go up to see the family, the first thing I do is go to Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery. I don't do that every time. And in that gallery, there's a wonderful picture of King Faisal of Iraq. And in fact, Martha, I was interested to note, met with, whoops, sorry, 
met with King Faisal when she went to Iraq. He he was known as a human a great humanitarian, and they had an interesting interview. She then went across to the border with Iran, and Shoghi Effendi had he obviously knew that she was going there, but he said that she must be very very vigilant that the, he contacted the, the local spiritual assemblies of the Baha'is in Iran who were to accompany her. Now, again, for those who, who aren't so familiar with the Baha'i faith, the local spiritual assemblies would be any place where there are nine or more Baha'is in an area. They would sort of form a group. So these were the people who were to accompany Martha. So, oh, sorry, I just keep doing that. So a car went across from Iraq across to Iran to take Martha to the border of Iran. Now, when she got to the border, they had to wait for a while and the officials went through all her boxes and belongings. Now, you, we, you'll know from last week that when Martha traveled, she would normally have about 17 pieces of luggage. Not for herself, she lived very frugally, but it would be full of Baha'i literature, her typewriter, she was a journalist, and all this sort of thing. When she got to the border, they told her that she would not be able to take any Baha'i books in. If she did, they would burn them. Martha replied, I know, and I didn't bring any. But after, when she had got through, Martha then wrote a letter to the customs officials, thanking them for their courtesy. But she said, the teachings of Baha'u'llah are not against Islam. If you will read the books, you will see where he speaks about the station of Muhammad and the people know about the station of Muhammad through Baha'u'llah. But so she was pretty feisty, you know, to have done something like that. So anyway, she gets into Persia and Martha is very enamored to be in Persia. She, I'll just um, go forward. This is Persia in the 1920s. It's a street scene. Sorry, it's not a very clear photograph, but this is how the sort of scene that Martha would have seen in the 1920s. She was met by the Baha'is at the border um, yeah, so she was, met, she was met by the spiritual assembly there. Now, just beyond the border, she was, sorry, she was on Persian soil. It was January 1930. She felt the sanctity of the place that she was in and Shoghi Effendi had written to the Baha'is in Persia and they told, basically asking them to receive this noble soul with their hearts and souls and to perform the ceremonies of hospitality towards her with all respect and utmost affection. Yes, yeah, so the Persia that she entered was not very different from the time of the birth of the Baha'i faith in 1844. Word of her coming spread like br brush fire and her route and schedule seems mysteriously known. And despite Shoghi Effendi's wishes, 
who wanted Martha to be a little bit more clandestine, you know, for her safety more than anything. Martha was met by hundreds of people when she she entered into into Persia, including Baha'is who lined the way for miles and often waited all night to catch a glimpse of her. Now, this is a very different Martha from the one that we saw last week where she entered places unknown. She was now basically becoming becoming known. And in some places, it was highly dangerous for people to be identified as Baha'is, but Martha recognized their presence through their signals. Along one route, the the Baha'is from a village wore ancient pastel costumes and signaled the car to stop while they played an ancient Persian instrument, danced and sang a song of spring. It was a royal welcome indeed. So Martha's route from Baghdad to Tehran, uh, that's Tehran, spanned 500 miles. Now between there, yes, you guessed it, there was another huge mountain range called the Zagros Mountains. And again, it was during the winter. Poor Martha, she loved the heat and hot weather, but she very rarely experienced it. This was during the cold and snowy weather. There was no mules this time, that story that we were hearing about last week. But she found they found that the mountain roads were often blocked. They would often have to wait for hours until the passage was was cleared. At least the at least twice during this journey. Sorry. Um, I keep trying to get my arrow. To, yeah, during this journey, get to go to Tehran, they had to stop over. Now, the story here was they would have to stop in very crude buildings. One was a a supposedly a coffee shop with a dirt floor that turned to oozing mud several inches deep when the donkey drivers piled in and deposited their melting snow. But a storeroom was cleared, a quilt was hung at the opening for privacy, and Martha slept on a table with coats piled on for warmth. In one of these places, a fire was made during the night in the brazier. The windows had been hermetically sealed, which almost caused the guests to be asphyxiated. It was only Martha waking up in the night, whose weak voice roused a companion who broke open a window. So she was almost suffocated before she'd even managed to to get anywhere. So they travelled through the snowy mountains, passed into Hamadan. There were by now 20 cars. It must have been quite a sight, a cavalcade, filled with Baha'is who ushered her into the city. One who had come with her from Kermanshah remarked, not even emperors and kings have 20 motor cars awaiting their approach. She spent three days in Hamadan giving public lectures and meeting the Baha'is. Um, let's just, this is with a group of Baha'is in in Iran, giving lectures. Everywhere she went, she was protected by the authorities, although the religious climate in Hamadan was freer than in other places. So, sorry, keep going the wrong way. 
Here we go. Um, when she arrived, So I was hoping to find Kasvin on that map. Um, this Kasvin was um, a place where Tahereh, one of the first disciples of the Bab, um, was born. And quite, it, it was quite interesting that Tahereh, in the history of religion, we have not had a female disciple, but she was one of the first ones to champion, and she, she championed the equality of the sexes. But Martha went to Tahereh's home in Kazvin, and interestingly, even in the 1920s, there was a Baha'i school for girls in Kazvin in Persia in 1928. And this was quite something when you think of the climate in the rest of the country. So Martha went on to Tehran, the birthplace of Baha'u'llah, go back to this is this is Tehran and this was the place where he had been reared where he was imprisoned in the first prison in the CHR and while in Tehran Martha hoped to arrange a meeting with the Shah again this is this would seem highly dangerous <laughs> Um, considering it was the Shah and the leaders that persecuted the Baha'is. But she met with a minister of the court. She passed, I guess the literature must have come from the Baha'is in Iran because she wasn't able to send anything, you know, she wasn't able to bring any books in, himself, in herself. But she passed these on to the Shah. And she was not able to see him, but she passed on a small gift for his son, the crown prince. Martha never went out alone except to give talks and lectures, and she always went in a closed automobile. She finally came to the city of Tabriz. This is where this picture was taken. And if I can just show you on the map again, this is Tabriz. Now the Bab who I mentioned earlier on, the forerunner of Baha'u'llah was martyred in Tabriz. And Martha was able to get to this place. It's quite a story about his martyrdom, but I won't have time to go into it now. So Martha Root, the first Baha'i from the West, was able to visit this place, which was quite a historic visit. She then went down to Shiraz, which is where the Bab was born. And Near to Shiraz, it's quite an interesting story that a young, uh, she actually went to Persepolis, which was the ruins of the ancient capital of Iran, which was 30 miles northeast of Shiraz. She was suddenly startled by the sight of nomads on horseback galloping furiously towards her. It seemed as if she was about to be deliberately run down when she discovered that they were actually young Baha'is. They had come to welcome her with a flourish, reaching down to gather pebbles as they galloped by. So these were young nomads. So I don't know if any young Baha'is are here this evening, but that's you know quite a story. That was their way of welcoming Martha Root. She was then going on to Bushir, and she actually, the, this, the road to Bushir actually was impassable. So the Baha'i suggested that she flew there 
the air flight was just starting. So this was actually Martha's first flight to go to Bashir, which was quite something. So by now she's traveled on just about every means of transport. So that was the end of her journey in Iran. She was now from Iran, she went on to India, which was actually her third journey to India. I'm really sad not to be able to recount that one to you this evening. It's a really important journey. Um, and of course it was mentioned last week by Jyoti. I have got the picture actually of Jyoti's mother that she mentioned, which we can perhaps have a look at in question time. But the Baha'is, the National Assembly of the Baha'is of Iran, they wrote to the Baha'is in America to say how we wished our American brothers and sisters were here to perceive the spirit of love which pervaded the meetings held for Miss Root, the eagerness which friends rushed to meet her and the devotion and enthusiasm with which everyone listened to her sweet glad tidings and the profound effect of which Martha Root's words emanating from a divinely confirmed source produced upon those hearing her. The Baha'is of Tehran regard Martha Root as an angel of purity, as a true Baha'i, that is the possessor of all human virtues. She has attracted the hearts of all the friends. So that's very interesting, you know, that a Baha'i from the West, from Ohio in America was able to visit the Baha'is of Iran and set up this, this contact. So she went from there, from basically now, as I said, the world, the world is Martha's home. She, she just literally crisscrossed the world so many times. She did go on to India and we will have to have a separate fireside. It was very interesting last week hearing the stories from Arthur Dahl and Jyoti and other people who actually have family members who met Martha Root or had lunch with Martha Root, as Arthur was telling us. So perhaps that would be worth the fireside of the future. And she spent 15 months actually in, she went on to India. She then went on to Australia and to New Zealand. Now we're talking now about a woman who's in her, you know, 50s getting on to 60s actually and Martha had already in fact visited China she'd been there before she went on her pilgrimage that was in 1923 and I sadly again I, I can't tell you about China this evening because it would just be too long that's another another fireside but Martha did what Martha does in China she she would speak, she would contact the newspapers, speak to the people. And the reason why she went to China was because it was very important to Abdul Baha. Abdul Baha wanted to get to China himself, he wanted to get to India, but he was just unable to. And this, I think, Abdul Baha's writings here tell you the high esteem that he held for the Chinese people, even though he wasn't able to get there. And I like what he said below there, that the, the, the Baha'i teacher of the Chinese people must first be imbued with their spirit, know their sacred literature, study their national customs, and speak to them from their own standpoint and from their own terminologies. So what we're talking about again was Martha 
was not traveling the world necessarily to make Baha'i converts. She had a message. She was driven. She, she, this message of universal peace, the oneness of mankind, was like a gem that she wanted to offer to humanity. And she wanted to learn from people as much as she was conveying a message to them. And Abdul Baha said that this is important to speak to people in their own in their own language and to understand their own customs and terminologies. So we're rolling forward now a little bit. We're on to the first trip that she made. As I said, she lived in great discomfort in China. It was cold again for most of the time. She lived in Beijing and Peking, it was known back then. She lived, she taught herself the language. She would contact universities. She would contact statesmen. She would give groups in schools. She taught, she sent newspaper articles back home. And in fact, one of the first universities built in China was a Baha'i university. And that was directly as a result of people who had come into contact with Martha Root. Now, basically in, um, in 1936, Martha returned briefly to America at the behest of Shoghi Effendi because of her health. From now on, really, Martha is in constant pain. She has pain in her neck, pain in her head. And for the people who weren't here last week, and when we think of a driving force again, Martha was diagnosed in 1912 with cancer. That actually went into remission for quite some time. But now, as she was between her 50s and 60s, it had come back again. Martha would not see a doctor. She was afraid if she saw a doctor that they would tell her not to travel. But when she was back in America, she did a... She was... Shoghi Effendi had written to Roy Wilhelm and told them that she must rest. For Martha, a rest was a couple of weeks and then she would start touring again, telling them about her travels. But she, after a few months, she just wanted to get on the road again. She just couldn't stop. She wanted to return to China. And this, on her way to China, she left San Francisco on the 25th of May, 1937. She would always stop in Japan. Here she visited um, the Baha'is there again. The Baha'i on the right there was a blind Baha'i actually, visually impaired. And she went back to visit them in 1937. She then goes on to China itself. And at this time it was approaching the Second World War. Japan was actually aggressively bombing China they were, I guess they had designs on, you know, invading China or whatever. But Martha was never one to be put off by war. And um, in fact, one of my other sisters, Colette, mentioned that if Martha wasn't a Baha'i, she would have definitely been a, the Kate Aidy or the Orla Gerin type of journalist. And on the one hand, she this is what she did. She went to where the action was happening. So she's actually in her 60s now, but she goes in, she goes into Shanghai. She 
gets herself accommodation. But as soon as she's settled into her accommodation, she hears the bombs whirring over Shanghai. This is how she describes it. The whirring, the staccato, louder and louder, over our heads, the horror, the shock, the shaking house, the awful explosions of bursting bombs. It was like hell on earth. I was on the fifth floor, the top floor, and I thought our house was falling. I was living a half a block away from the place they were aiming to block, to, to, to bomb. So basically, she's walked right into the middle of a, of a war here, and she's a woman of 65 years old. She calls the American consulate, but it was no safer to go there. They were being bombed too. They all run out into the hall, and this is a picture of people sheltering during the Battle of, Banghai, of Shanghai in 1937. So now she's got to get out. So she calls the British Steamship Company. She wants to go down to Hong Kong, but they are only taking British passengers. She then calls an American Steamship Company who agree to take her. She's supposed to go down to the port to buy her ticket, but she is, she's unable to do this. She's in pain. She's got pain in her neck and her head, and she simply can't do it. And absolute chaos is reigning. She did have one Chinese Baha'i to help her and two teenagers who she wrote very highly of. She then gets down to the port, she arrives at the ship's office and they tell her she hadn't already booked her ticket but they allow her to get on board ship to, to get out of this war zone, this country. But unfortunately she got on the wrong ship, she wanted to go down to Hong Kong but she ends up going back, going to Manila in the Philippines. Now, when she arrived in the Philippines, she gets off the ship. A telegram had been sent on to Manila. One of the Baha'is came to meet her there. A gentleman named Mr. Gourley waited on the shore to assist her. But as she was going down the long central aisle from the boat to customs to get her suitcase, by the way, she had to leave all of her suitcases behind in Shanghai. Then suddenly, this immense and very high structure of cement and steel, the ground began to shake violently and to move up towards our faces. The noise above of steel and rattling iron made me think that the aeroplanes were raiding Manila and the explosions were tearing the earth under our feet. We tried to run forward, but we were very far from the exit. People were stampeding, rushing and crushing. Now, what was going on? The, there was no war going on in Manila at that time. Basically, Martha, after escaping from the bombing in Shanghai, she was greeted in Manila with one of the worst earthquakes in the, in the Philippines in a century. She was grateful to have come through both tragedies unscathed. But... She was concerned about the loss in Shanghai of the life of the people, of her papers, the work of a lifetime, which included irreplaceable information. Now, I think us Baha'is, we are very grateful that Martha wasn't um, 
just a journalist, that she wasn't just a Kate Aidy or an Orla Garin, because if she had been, she would have been recounting everything that had been happening, sending them back to the newspaper syndicates in America. She did this anyway, by the way. This was how she was still earning her living. Whatever happened, she would write an account and send it back to America. But on top of that, Martha had a message of peace, of justice, of oneness, of humanity, of hopefully bringing ideas for a template to rid the world of war altogether. That was, that was what she really wanted to do. So that was Martha. She carried on after, the, after this journey. She then went back to Australia again and New Zealand. And while she was there, the pain was so intense, she didn't think she could go to New Zealand. But she just decided, don't forget, it's a woman now approaching, let's see, 65, 66 years, I would say. She thought she could either rest in a spa and maybe she would die or she could carry on her travels, imparting this message, this important message to the world. And she just opted to do that. But nonetheless, she became very ill in New Zealand. And again, she, she felt the Baha'is at least encouraged her to go back to America. So she boarded the Mariposa from Auckland, heading to Francisco, via Honolulu, via Samoa, and you know the, uh, those other places in the North Pacific Ocean. She was in constant pain now. And in fact, two doctors from New Zealand, Baha'i doctors, were accompanying her. They were also chiropractors. And Martha insisted that she was suffering from arthritis and sciatica. And of course, it wasn't that at all. She explained, she wrote home to America that she was so very ill on this ship that I screamed with the pain in my neck, which was terribly inflamed. I thought I would pass out. Everything is being done for me. I was in such pain, it was so hard to swallow. I have suffered, but I'm quite a little better. Now for Martha to even say that she had suffered was something because she'd been suffering for 10, 15 years now and still carried, on, still carried on. So Martha continued to make plans. She was, she was on her way to San Francisco, but the ship stopped off in Honolulu and typical Martha, she had a complete program in Honolulu for however long the ship had stayed there and the Baha'i friends were waiting for her. They docked there on the 7th of June, 1939. Now, the Baha'i friends were waiting for her and strangely enough, Martha did not come off the ship. Eventually the Baha'is became concerned. She was very ill, she was unable to leave the ship. And again, this shows how bad it was because Martha, no matter what, would always get off the ship and do whatever she had to do. 
This time she was persuaded that it would be better to spend the day in a cool, comfortable room on shore than in a stuffy cabin shared with three other people. And don't forget, on all of her journeys, Martha travelled in the in third class, it was always shared accommodation. It was also, it was always the most uncomfortable accommodation. So she went aboard and she went to the house of Catherine Baldwin, who she'd stayed with before on Honolulu. Eventually, she, Martha made the decision not to go back on the ship. So it must have been pretty serious. Martha agreed finally to see some doctors. She, she was afraid of doctors, actually, Martha was. And the reason being was another, reason, another explanation, if you like, for her, her drive, her motivation, was that when she was in her 20s, she'd suffered a severe bicycle accident. She'd ended up in hospital. She'd had an operation. And in fact, she describes her pain as being not dissimilar to the pain she was in when she had this accident. This accident also meant that she couldn't have children, and this may also have been a motivating force for her. She kind of accepted that she wasn't going to have the usual family life of her peers, perhaps, and that, you know, perhaps this was just another drive in her life. So eventually she was seen by a Dr Molyneux at Catherine Baldwin's house in Honolulu. He persuaded her with great compassion and tact to go for an x-ray. And he, this proved that the history of, of a breast tumour of some 20 years duration, by now it had spread to her bones, she had metastases, so the enigmatic nature of Martha's illness throughout the years had finally been clarified by the medical report. Her decreased mobility was the result of the spreading cancer, which had caused her bones to become paper thin. So all of her travels, her travels throughout India, Australia, New Zealand, this cancer was spreading throughout her body, but she achieved so much. Later, she agreed to, be to take medication and she was put onto morphine. Martha's surroundings, sorry, I haven't got a, a picture of it here, but she was staying at the Baldwin's house and she looked out over onto fields. The climate was perfect. She liked Honolulu. She looked out to flowering shrubs and avocado and mango trees, a sight she loved, all within view of her bed. As the weeks progressed, her condition grew worse. She had 24-hour care by this time from nurses and from the doctors. And surrounded by cheerfulness and love, with Catherine Baldwin and Henriette from at her bedside, Martha closed her eyes and on the 28th of September 1939, she slipped into unconsciousness and moved from this world. It was a gentle, peaceful leave-taking. Martha was on another journey. The course was uncharted, but was one she had often explored in spirit. There would be no need for her 23 pieces of luggage. 
Neither would she need her score of address books, her portable kitchen, her books, her manuscripts. No need for a visa. Not even the earthly shell was necessary. Martha embarked on this trip unencumbered. And as she left this life, and even before, the Baha'i friends were saying a Baha'i prayer which she loved. It was her favorite prayer. From the sweet scented streams of thine eternity, give me to drink, O oh my God. And of the fruits of the tree of thy being, enable me to taste, O oh my hope. From the crystal springs of thy love, suffer me to quaff, O oh my glory. And beneath the shadow of thine everlasting providence, let me abide, O oh my light. From the fragrant breeze of thy joy, let a breath pass over me, O oh my goal. And into the heights of the paradise of thy reality, let me gain admission. To the melodies of the dove of thy oneness, suffer me to hearken. And this was the prayer with which Martha left this life. Martha, Martha Root, passed away in Honolulu, the fragile aristocrat of the soul. So thank you, everybody. It, it was just, sorry, sorry, Steve. It just I had to I had to choose a few stories from the masses and masses of stories that are that Martha has got. It's almost unbelievable. You can't believe her pace. She never stopped from the age fifty. And as, as I said last week, those of you who think your life is over at 40 or 50, think again. Martha Root's travels didn't begin until she was 40. She didn't stop, but she did go back to America. They were shorter trips until she was 50. From 50 to 67 when she died. And although ill with this cancer that she'd had since 1912, albeit in remission, she simply didn't stop. She was just driven to deliver this message of love and peace to the world. And I think I've finished on time. That's great. 